Section 17 of Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books. John Dryden. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Giessen. Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books. Edited by Charles W. Eliot. Preface to Fables Ancient and Modern by John Dryden, 1700. John Dryden, 1631 to 1700, the great dramatic and satirical poet of the later 17th century whose translation of Virgil's Aeneid appears in another volume of the Harvard Classics, deserves hardly less distinction as a prose writer than as a poet. The present essay, prefixed to a volume of narrative poems, is largely concerned with Chaucer, and in its genial and penetrating criticism, expressed with characteristic clearness and vigour, can be seen the ground for naming dryden the first of english literary critics and the founder of modern prose style tis with a poet as with a man who designs to build and is very exact as he supposes in casting up the cost beforehand but generally speaking he is mistaken in his account and reckons short of the expense he first intended he alters his mind as the work proceeds and will have this or that convenience more of which he had not thought when he began so has it happened to me i have built a house where I intended but a lodge, yet with better success than a certain nobleman. Footnote. Scott suggests that the allusion is to the Duke of Buckingham, who was often satirised for the slow progress of his great mansion at Clifton. A certain nobleman, who, beginning with a dog-kennel, never lived to finish the palace he had contrived from translating the first of homer's iliads which i intended as an essay to the whole work i proceeded to the translation of the twelfth book of ovid's metamorphoses because it contains among other things the causes the beginning and ending of the trojan war here i ought in reason to have stopped but the speeches of ajax and ulysses lying next in my way i could not balk em when i had compassed them i was so taken with the former part of the fifteenth book which is the masterpiece of the whole metamorphoses that I enjoined myself the pleasing task of rendering it into English. And now I found, by the number of my verses, that they began to swell into a little volume, 
which gave me an occasion of looking backward on some beauties of my author in his former books there occurred to me the hunting of the boar kiniras and mira the good-natured story of baucis and philemon with the rest which i hope i have translated closely enough and given them the same turn of verse which they had in the original and this i may say without vanity is not the talent of every poet he who has arrived the nearest to it is the ingenious and learned sands the best versifier of the former age if i may properly call it by that name which was the former part of this concluding century for spencer and fairfax both flourished in the reign of queen elizabeth great masters in our language and who saw much farther into the beauties of our numbers than those who immediately followed them milton was the poetical son of spencer and mr waller of fairfax for we have our lineal descents and clans as well as other families spencer more than once insinuates that the soul of chaucer was transfused into his body and that he was begotten by him two hundred years after his decease milton has acknowledged to me that spencer was his original and many besides myself have heard our famous waller own that he derived the harmony of his numbers from the godfrey of boulogne who was turned into english by mr fairfax but to return having done with ovid for this time it came into my mind that our old english poet chaucer in many things resembled him and that with no disadvantage on the side of the modern author as i shall endeavour to prove when i compare them and as i am and always have been studious to promote the honour of my native country so i soon resolved to put their merits to the trial by turning some of the canterbury tales into our language as it is now refined for by this means both the poets being set in the same light and dressed in the same english habit story to be compared with story a certain judgment may be made betwixt them by the reader without obtruding my opinion on him or if i seem partial to my countryman and predecessor in the laurel the friends of antiquity are not few and besides many of the learned ovid has almost all the beau and the whole fair sex his declared patrons perhaps i have assumed somewhat more to myself than they allow me because i have adventured to sum up the evidence but the readers are the jury and their privilege remains entire to decide according to the merits of the cause 
or if they please to bring it to another hearing before some other court in the meantime to follow the thread of my discourse as thoughts according to mr hobbes have always some connection so from chaucer i was led to think on boccas who was not only his contemporary but also pursued the same studies wrote novels in prose and many works in verse particularly is said to have invented the octave rhyme or stanza of eight lines which ever since has been maintained by the practice of all italian writers who are or at least assume the title of heroic poets footnote boccaccio did not invent this stanza which had been used in both french and italian before his day but he did constitute it the italian form for heroic verse he and chaucer among other things had this in common that they refined their mother tongues but with this difference that dante had begun to file their language at least in verse before the time of boccas who likewise received no little help from his master petrarch but the reformation of their prose was wholly owing to boccas himself who is yet the standard of purity in the italian tongue though many of his phrases are become obsolete as in process of time it must needs happen chaucer as you have formerly been told by our learned mr rymer first adorned and amplified our barren tongue from the provencal which was then the most polished of all the modern languages footnote rymer misled dryden there is no trace of provencal influence on chaucer but this subject has been copiously treated by that great critic who deserves no little commendation from us his countrymen for these reasons of time and resemblance of genius in chaucer and boccas i resolved to join them in my present work to which i have added some original papers of my own which whether they are equal or inferior to my other poems an author is the most improper judge and therefore i leave them wholly to the mercy of the reader i will hope the best that they will not be condemned but if they should i have the excuse of an old gentleman who mounting on horseback before some ladies when i was present got up somewhat heavily but desired of the fair spectators that they would count fourscore and eight before they judged him by the mercy of god i am already come within twenty years of his number a cripple in my limbs but what decays are in my mind the reader must determine 
i think myself as vigorous as ever in the faculties of my soul excepting only my memory which is not impaired to any great degree and if i lose not more of it i have no great reason to complain what judgment i had increases rather than diminishes and thoughts such as they are come crowding in so fast upon me that my only difficulty is to choose or to reject to run them into verse or to give them the other harmony of prose i have so long studied and practised both that they are grown into a habit and become familiar to me in short though i may lawfully plead some part of the old gentleman's excuse yet i will reserve it till i think i have greater need and ask no grains of allowance for the faults of this my present work but those which are given of course to human frailty i will not trouble my reader with the shortness of time in which i writ it or the several intervals of sickness they who think too well of their own performances are apt to boast in their prefaces how little time their works have cost them and what other business of more importance interfered but the reader will be as apt to ask the question why they allowed not a longer time to make their works more perfect and why they had so despicable an opinion of their judges as to thrust their indigested stuff upon them as if they deserved no better with this account of my present undertaking i conclude the first part of this discourse in the second part as at a second sitting though i alter not the draught i must touch the same features over again and change the dead colouring of the whole footnote the foundation layer of colour in a painting in general i will only say that i have written nothing which savours of immorality or profaneness at least i am not conscious to myself of any such intention if there happen to be found an irreverent expression or a thought too wanton they are crept into my verses through my inadvertency if the searchers find any in the cargo let them be stayed or forfeited like counterbanded goods at least let their authors be answerable for them as being but imported merchandise and not of my own manufacture on the other side i have endeavoured to choose such fables both ancient and modern as contain in each of them some instructive moral which i could prove by induction but the way is tedious and they leap foremost into sight without the reader's trouble of looking after them i wish i could affirm with a safe conscience that i had taken the same care in all my former writings 
for it must be owned that supposing verses are never so beautiful or pleasing yet if they contain anything which shocks religion or good manners they are at best what horace says of good numbers without good sense versus inopes rerum nugaeque canorae footnote verses without content melodious trifles ars poetica line three hundred and twenty two thus far i hope i am right in court without renouncing my other right of self-defence where i have been wrongfully accused and my sense wire-drawn into blasphemy or bawdry as it has often been by a religious lawyer in a late pleading against the stage footnote jeremy collier in his short view of the immorality and profaneness of the stage sixteen ninety eight in which he mixes truth with falsehood and has not forgotten the old rule of calumniating strongly that something may remain i resume the thread of my discourse with the first of my translations which was the first iliad of homer if it shall please god to give me longer life and moderate health my intentions are to translate the whole ilias provided still that i meet with those encouragements from the public which may enable me to proceed in my undertaking with some cheerfulness and this i dare assure the world beforehand that i have found by trial homer a more pleasing task than virgil though i say not the translation will be less laborious for the grecian is more according to my genius than the latin poet in the works of the two authors we may read their manners and natural inclinations which are wholly different virgil was of a quiet sedate temper homer was violent impetuous and full of fire the chief talent of virgil was propriety of thoughts and ornament of words homer was rapid in his thoughts and took all the liberties both of numbers and of expressions which his language and the age in which he lived allowed him homer's invention was more copious virgil's more confined so that if homer had not led the way it was not in virgil to have begun heroic poetry for nothing can be more evident than that the roman poem is but the second part of the ilias a continuation of the same story and the persons already formed the manners of aeneas are those of hector superadded to those which homer gave him the adventures of ulysses in the odysseus are imitated in the first six books of virgil's aeneas and though the accidents are not the same 
which would have argued him of a servile copying and total barrenness of invention yet the seas were the same in which both the heroes wandered and dido cannot be denied to be the poetical daughter of calypso the six latter books of virgil's poems are the four-and-twenty iliads contracted a quarrel occasioned by a lady a single combat battles fought and a town besieged i say not this in derogation to virgil nor do i contradict anything which i have formerly said in his just praise for his episodes are almost wholly of his own invention and the form which he has given to the telling makes the tale his own even though the original story had been the same but this proves however that homer taught virgil to design and if invention be the first virtue of an epic poet then the latin poem can only be allowed the second place mr hobbes in the preface to his own bald translation of the ilias studying poetry as he did mathematics when it was too late mr hobbes i say begins the praise of homer where he should have ended it he tells us that the first beauty of an epic poem consists in diction that is in the choice of words and harmony of numbers now the words are the colouring of the work which in the order of nature is last to be considered the design the disposition the manners and the thoughts are all before it where any of those are wanting or imperfect so much wants or is imperfect in the imitation of human life which is in the very definition of a poem words indeed like glaring colours are the first beauties that arise and strike the sight but if the draught be false or lame the figures ill-disposed the manners obscure or inconsistent or the thoughts unnatural then the finest colours are but daubing and the piece is a beautiful monster at the best neither virgil nor homer were deficient in any of the former beauties but in this last which is expression the roman poet is at least equal to the grecian as i have said elsewhere supplying the poverty of his language by his musical ear and by his diligence but to return our two great poets being so different in their tempers one choleric and sanguine the other phlegmatic and melancholic that which makes them excel in their several ways is that each of them has followed his own natural inclination as well in forming the design as in the execution of it the very heroes show their authors achilles is hot impatient revengeful 
impiger iracundus inexorabilis acer etc footnote energetic irascible unyielding vehement horace ars poetica line one hundred and twenty one aeneas patient considerate careful of his people and merciful to his enemies ever submissive to the will of heaven quo fata traunt retrauntque sequamur footnote whithersoever the fates drag us to and fro let us follow virgil aeneid book five line seven hundred and nine i could please myself with enlarging on this subject but am forced to defer it to a fitter time from all i have said i will only draw this inference that the action of homer being more full of vigour than that of virgil according to the temper of the writer is of consequence more pleasing to the reader one warms you by degrees the other sets you on fire all at once and never intermits his heat tis the same difference which longinus makes between the effects of eloquence in demosthenes and tully one persuades the other commands you never cool while you read homer even not in the second book a graceful flattery to his countrymen but he hastens from the ships and concludes not that book till he has made you an amends by the violent playing of a new machine from thence he hurries on his action with the variety of events and ends it in less compass than two months the vehemence of this i confess is more suitable to my temper and therefore i have translated his first book with greater pleasure than any part of virgil but it was not a pleasure without pains the continual agitations of the spirits must needs be a weakening of any constitution especially in age and many pauses are required for refreshment betwixt the heats the iliad of itself being a third part longer than all virgil's works together this is what i thought needful in this place to say of homer i proceed to ovid and chaucer considering the former only in relation to the latter with ovid ended the golden age of the roman tongue from chaucer the purity of the english tongue began the manners of the poets were not unlike both of them were well-bred well-natured amorous and libertine at least in their writings it may be also in their lives their studies were the same philosophy and philology both of them were knowing in astronomy of which ovid's books of the roman feasts and chaucer's treatise of the astrolabe are sufficient witnesses 
but chaucer was likewise an astrologer as were virgil horace perseus and manilius both writ with wonderful facility and clearness neither were great inventors for ovid only copied the grecian fables and most of chaucer's stories were taken from his italian contemporaries or their predecessors footnote the statements that follow as to chaucer's sources are mostly not in accord with the results of modern scholarship Bocas, his decameron was first published and from thence our englishman has borrowed many of his canterbury tales yet that of palamon and arcite was written in all probability by some italian wit in a former age as i shall prove hereafter the tale of grizzled was the invention of petrarch by him sent to Bocas from whom it came to chaucer troilus and cressida was also written by a lombard author but much amplified by our english translator as well as beautified the genius of our countrymen in general being rather to improve an invention than to invent themselves as is evident not only in our poetry but in many of our manufactures i find i have anticipated already and taken up from bocas before i come to him but there is so much less behind and i am of the temper of most kings who love to be in debt are all for present money no matter how they pay it afterwards besides the nature of a preface is rambling never wholly out of the way nor in it this i have learned from the practice of honest montaigne and return at my pleasure to ovid and chaucer of whom i have little more to say both of them built on the inventions of other men yet since chaucer had something of his own as the wife of bath's tale the cock and the fox footnote the plot of neither of these poems was original with chaucer which i have translated and some others i may justly give our countrymen the precedence in that part since i can remember nothing of ovid which was wholly his both of them understood the manners under which name i comprehend the passions and in a larger sense the descriptions of persons and their very habits for an example i see baucis and philemon as perfectly before me as if some ancient painter had drawn them and all the pilgrims in the canterbury tales their humours their features and the very dress as distinctly as if i had supped with them at the tabard in southwark yet even there too the figures of chaucer are much more lively and set in a better light which though i have not time to prove yet i appeal to the reader and am sure he will clear me from partiality 
the thoughts and words remain to be considered in the comparison of the two poets and i have saved myself one half of that labour by owning that ovid lived when the roman tongue was in its meridian chaucer in the dawning of our language therefore that part of the comparison stands not on an equal foot any more than the diction of ennius and ovid or of chaucer and our present english the words are given up as a post not to be defended in our poet because he wanted the modern art of fortifying the thoughts remain to be considered and they are to be measured only by their propriety that is as they flow more or less naturally from the persons described on such and such occasions the vulgar judges which are nine parts in ten of all nations who call conceits and jingles wit who see ovid full of them and chaucer altogether without them will think me little less than mad for preferring the englishman to the roman yet with their leave i must presume to say that the things they admire are only glittering trifles and so far from being witty that in a serious poem they are nauseous because they are unnatural would any man who is ready to die for love describe his passion like narcissus would he think of inopem me copia fecit footnote plenty has made me poor metamorphoses book three line four hundred and sixty six and a dozen more of such expressions poured on the neck of one another and signifying all the same thing if this were wit was this a time to be witty when the poor wretch was in the agony of death this is just john littlewit in bartholomew fair footnote by ben jonson who had a conceit as he tells you left him in his misery a miserable conceit on these occasions the poet should endeavour to raise pity but instead of this ovid is tickling you to laugh virgil never made use of such machines when he was moving you to commiserate the death of dido he would not destroy what he was building chaucer makes arcite violent in his love and unjust in the pursuit of it yet when he came to die he made him think more reasonably he repents not of his love for that had altered his character but acknowledges the injustice of his proceedings and resigns emilia to palamon what would ovid have done on this occasion he would certainly have made arcite witty on his deathbed 
he had complained he was farther off from possession by being so near and a thousand such boyisms which chaucer rejected as below the dignity of the subject they who think otherwise would by the same reason prefer lucan and ovid to homer and virgil and martial to all four of them as for the turn of words in which ovid particularly excels all poets they are sometimes a fault and sometimes a beauty as they are used properly or improperly but in strong passions always to be shunned because passions are serious and will admit no playing the french have a high value for them and i confess they are often what they call delicate when they are introduced with judgment but chaucer writ with more simplicity and followed nature more closely than to use them i have thus far to the best of my knowledge been an upright judge betwixt the parties in competition not meddling with the design nor the disposition of it because the design was not their own and in the disposing of it they were equal it remains that i say somewhat of chaucer in particular in the first place as he is the father of english poetry so i hold him in the same degree of veneration as the grecians held homer or the romans virgil he is a perpetual fountain of good sense learned in all sciences and therefore speaks properly on all subjects as he knew what to say so he knows also when to leave off a continence which is practised by few writers and scarcely by any of the ancients excepting virgil and horace one of our late great poets footnote cowley is sunk in his reputation because he could never forgive any conceit which came in his way but swept like a dragnet great and small there was plenty enough but the dishes were ill sorted whole pyramids of sweetmeats for boys and women but little of solid meat for men all this proceeded not from any want of knowledge but of judgment neither did he want that in discerning the beauties and faults of other poets but only indulged himself in the luxury of writing and perhaps knew it was a fault but hoped the reader would not find it for this reason though he must always be thought a great poet he is no longer esteemed a good writer and for ten impressions which his works have had in so many successive years yet at present a hundred books are scarcely purchased once a twelvemonth for as my last lord rochester said though somewhat profanely 
not being of god he could not stand chaucer followed nature everywhere but was never so bold to go beyond her and there is a great difference of being poeta and nimis poeta footnote too much a poet marshall book three number forty four not catullus if we may believe catullus as much as betwixt a modest behaviour and affectation the verse of chaucer i confess is not harmonious to us but tis like the eloquence of one whom tacitus commends it was auribus istius temporis accommodata footnote suited to the ears of that time they who lived with him and some time after him thought it musical and it continued so even in our judgment if compared with the numbers of lydgate and gower his contemporaries there is the rude sweetness of a scotch tune in it which is natural and pleasing though not perfect tis true i cannot go so far as he who published the last edition of him for he would make us believe the fault is in our ears and that there were really ten syllables in a verse where we find but nine footnote spate who modern scholarship has shown to be right in this matter but this opinion is not worth confuting tis so gross and obvious an error that common sense which is a rule in everything but matters of faith and revelation must convince the reader that equality of numbers in every verse which we call heroic was either not known or not always practised in chaucer's age it were an easy matter to produce some thousands of his verses which are lame for want of half a foot and sometimes a whole one and which no pronunciation can make otherwise we can only say that he lived in the infancy of our poetry and that nothing is brought to perfection at the first we must be children before we grow men there was an ennius and in process of time a lucilius and a lucretius before virgil and horace even after chaucer there was a spencer a harrington a fairfax before waller and denham were in being and our numbers were in their nonage till these last appeared end of section seventeen recording by martin geeson in Hazelmere, Surrey.